This week on Bike Talk, we talked to a car dependency campaigner in London named Sarah Berry. She's written about being an adult beginner bike rider and how the UK is hoping to start something really groundbreaking dubbed the Psycho Revolution. She also gives us a brilliant plan for how we can get the naysayers on our side. I'm Lindsay Sturman, and I'm incredibly passionate about bikes. Sarah, welcome to Bike Talk. You've become a bike activist, or I should say, would you call yourself a bike activist? And how did you become a bike activist? I, I don't know if I would call myself a bike activist. I think more than anything, I would call myself a car dependency activist, but I think those things go hand in hand. Um, so I am probably not your your typical um guest, you know, guest to be guest to be talking on this program. I um I only learned how to ride a bike, as in like only learned how to keep a bike upright and be stable on it about two years ago. Um, and I only started riding a bike properly about six months ago um, when a low traffic neighborhood change was introduced in my neighborhood, um, which basically means that a bunch of streets had their sort of entry rules changed uh, so that not not all cars could drive through particular roads. Um, so every house in the neighborhood remains accessible by car, but it means that rat running or people sort of cutting through residential neighborhoods to, to shave a minute or two off their journey can't really happen anymore. Um, and the result of that was my street and my neighborhood went from being full of traffic to basically, you know, empty and full of pedestrians, cyclists, scooters, children playing um, practically overnight. And when that happened, I thought to myself, you know, I'm out of excuses. I need to get a bike. I need to learn how to ride. Um, and I suddenly became super aware, as I'm sure that, you know, most most, most cyclists are, of just how big of a difference good infrastructure can make um, and sort of, you know, quieter car-free spaces can make. So the experiences that I was having on my bike as a beginner who's still struggling, who still, you know, can't always signal confidently and sometimes falls off, um, was really different in my neighbourhood where these low traffic neighbourhoods were in place. And when I was sort of out in the wider world um, where there were no cycle lanes and no traffic calming and no infrastructure for cyclists at all. Um, and that made me mad um, because unfairness of any, short, of any sort should make everybody mad. Um, and I started writing about my experiences as a beginner cyclist and advocating for better streets and better infrastructure um, and also just a more accessible culture and welcoming culture for, for beginners like me who might not feel like there's a place for them, but who where there absolutely definitely is a place for them. Why do you think you learned, what made you decide to learn a bike, ride a bike? And um, is it just something that people weren't doing when you were a kid? So people definitely were doing it when I was a kid. I had a bit of a bad experience where I would have been about five years old, um, just learning how to ride a bike, just getting my training wheels off, you know, that sort of standard experience. Um, and I was going down a hill riding a bike with my friend and my brakes failed. Um, and I sort of ran into the back of her and caused her a lot of pain. And I then became sort of terrified of cycling. And I grew up with two incredibly loving, but also very overprotective parents who weren't the kind of people to sort of encourage me to get back on the bike, so to speak. They were like, you don't want to do a slightly dangerous thing? Fantastic. Let's not do it. Um, so then, you know, I sort of 
sort of fell out with with cycling as an activity. But where I grew up, I was sort of grew up in the suburbs on the outskirts of Sydney and not many people rode bikes there. There was absolutely no road. There was absolutely no cycle infrastructure, um, no support for people who wanted to use that as a form of transportation, if not, you know, sort of a hobby. So it didn't really feel like a big loss in my life until I moved to London and I started to see so many people in this city getting around by bike and having just what seemed like a much better time than me. Um, I would be, you know, getting up really early, walking to the tube, you know, squeezing myself into the most, you know, tight and congested sort of sardine can of a tube carriage um, to to sort of be squeezed underneath someone's armpit on the way to work every morning um, and arrive mad at the world and and frustrated and tired, even though it was only 9am. And then all of my colleagues who had cycled in would sort of, you know, pull their helmet off and like toss their hair in slow motion and seem, you know, active and gorgeous and happy. And, you know, they'd already got their exercise in and they'd been outside and they were talking about the gorgeous weather. And, you know, I was just full of a very bitter, raging envy. Um, And I thought that, you know, it just wasn't something that I was ever going to be able to do. Um, As I said, I grew up fairly overprotected as a kid. I didn't have a lot of a lot of experiences with trying things that were that were new and I wasn't good at in my history. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a chubby girl. So, you know, I didn't see, you know, people who looked like me a lot super represented out on bikes on the road. Um, But London um, Transport for London has this incredible scheme where they will teach you how to ride a bike for free. Um, so it doesn't matter what level you're at. They have they have sort of three levels of training. One is for absolute beginners who have never ridden a bike before. One is for people who can ride a bike but aren't used to riding it on the road. And the third is for people who like sort of want to go, you know, head to head with a double decker bus in central London. Um, and they they match you up with with someone who will spend two hours on their Saturday teaching you how to ride a bike one on one, and they'll bring a bike and and walk you through it. So so wow. that's how I actually you know learned how to do it. Um, you know, started off just like screaming and wobbling and and all over the place, and then by the end of the session, you know, they had us had me sort of ducking and weaving through the obstacle courses and and different things like that. Um, but again, it wasn't until sort of I, that 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 gave me the ability to ride a bike, but not the confidence to feel like I could ride a bike on a road. And it wasn't until changes came in place in my neighbourhood that made the roads really, really quiet that I could get the practice that I needed to be able to then take up cycling as a form of transportation. And, you know, in a we just we just found out now that um, the UK's hit 33,000 cases today um per day so that was that was today's number for covid which is the highest we've had since march um and public transportation you know still feels like something that i shouldn't be using um mostly because of the fact that you know if if spaces on public transport are limited i want those spaces to go to people who actually need to use it to to get to work to get to family to get to you know the hospital wherever it is that they need to be um and being able to cycle now is hugely transformative for my life because if it weren't for that, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone further than walking distance from my house in six, seven months. And I hate to think what, what kind of shell of a human I would be if if that were the situation I was in. Why do you think it's so hard to penetrate either the public or the elected officials to just, it seems such a no brainer to just make 
like to really like put bikes over cars, make it completely safe. There's so many reasons. And I guess I'm just, maybe I, I just, you have to take the red pill and wake up, but I'm curious if you feel like you, what's, what's been the barrier? Great question. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting context at the moment in the UK because our national government has just announced, you know, $2 billion worth of funding to, for what they're calling the cycle revolution. So they want everyone in the country that can physically cycle to be cycling as a main form of transportation. So they're, you know, they're changing the road rules so that they prioritize cyclists and pedestrians. They're building protected cycle lanes on basically every road. They're, you know, they're really heavily investing. The politicians have, have got it, they understand, but the public is so far behind and they're a huge sort of opposition from members of the public, particularly driving members of the public who feel like this is a personal attack on them. Um, and I think, you know, I think one of the reasons that that comes from one of the reasons that it's that it's so hard to sort of get movement in cycle infrastructure and, and protection for cyclists is because for so long, you know, the, the car industry has been selling people this myth that owning a car equals freedom and that being able to, to, to be free and succeed in society is very much tied up in having a car, you know, having a nice car, especially in the US, having a big car. Um, and that just isn't the reality for people who, especially people who live in cities, um, you know, car ownership is incredibly expensive. Um, it's, it, it's incredibly, you know, disadvantage, disadvantages for the for the poorest and the most vulnerable members of society. Um, but it also is unsustainable. If we have an entire population who are using cars, our cities are going to be unlivable. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's these huge numbers of people that have bought into this promise of, of freedom and a better life, and they've invested hard-earned money and hard-earned time into that. And then they're seeing infrastructure go in that is for um, people who haven't, you know, made those sacrifices and haven't made those choices um, that they also perceive as taking space and freedom away from them. And it's just like they've been, you know, promised this ideal that hasn't eventuated. And there's this sunk cost feeling of, you know, I did everything. I did everything right. I've invested in this and I'm too far gone now to go back the other way. Um, so instead of, you know, thinking, is it still sensible for me to have a car or should I maybe get rid of that and start taking public transportation or learn how to ride a bike or walk to more local shops? People sort of double down and get, you know, quite aggressively clingy to, to this thing that they've invested so much hope in. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's really understandable and it's just such a, such a sad indictment on, on the way we've sort of allowed car culture to, to dominate. I always think of, I always think of jaywalking. I have, a, I have this distinct memory of, um, the first time I heard about the origins of jaywalking and how initially it wasn't a crime. Initially, you know, pedestrians had right of way on every single road when cars were first introduced but it was actually a campaign from a car company who who talked about Mr. Jay Walker and put in a um, a massive tombstone because he'd he'd stepped out into the road without looking for cars. Um, and from from that sort of you know car industry campaign targeting pedestrians and 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 trying to trying to flip who had the power on the roads, we've we've ended up in this situation where where cars really dominate and everyone else is sort of plays second fiddle. And, and for me, that was the thing that caused that light bulb moment. I, 
used to pass through this intersection on my way to the train station every day. And it was impossible to cross the entire six lanes of the intersection in one green man, in sort of in one crossing. Um, you had to wait on this tiny little island in the middle of the in the middle of the lanes for about, you know, 10, 15 seconds. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a long time, but when it's sort of, you know, every day, every time you're crossing that road, um, it certainly, it certainly feels like a long time when you're there. And to avoid it, people who were pedestrians would walk on the outside of the fence of this island and sort of hang on to it. Um, and and sort of balance sort of you know feebly on the edge of this sort of six lane highway um in the in the hopes of being able to get across the light in one go and, and not have to wait for um not have to not have to wait a certain amount of time to get across the road and i would watch that every morning and think about you know when i first saw it i was like this is so dangerous why are these people making this choice like why are why are they risking their lives like this and then one day I, I was at that intersection and I looked at it and I was like, who decided that the person in the car's time was more valuable than mine? And like, why am I worth less? Because I'm on foot. Um, and it was basically from that moment, a, a switch had been flipped in my mind that was that was really hard to, to go back. Um, but it's difficult for me to accept now, you know, as someone who's a car dependency advocate, who's someone who's a cyclist, that for so long, even though I wasn't a driver, I still really subscribed to that car culture and car dominance. And I, I really thought that they they were just more deserving than I was. And it was never a conscious thing. It was just something that was so deeply embedded in me that I couldn't even see that it was there. For the politicians or like, what do you think, what do you think was effective in getting them to wake up? I think, you know, the thing, the thing, especially in the UK, that's been effective is is coronavirus um unfortunately because we're in this situation where all of a sudden public transport is out the window and particularly in london the vast majority of people get around on public transportation and there was this massive fear within the government that everyone was going to get in their cars and you know our streets were going to just grind to a halt um and and that sort of forced people into into that change um but I think when you're when you're in a different context, you know, I think of LA and and how dominant the car culture is is there, and how how much the city is also built around cars. Right, it would be a very difficult place to begin walking to your destination all the time because everything is everything is built so far apart because everything you always have to have storage for you know a thousand cars in every building. Um, but I think you know. The I the I think the simple idea of for every bike on the road there's one less car um, is one that sort of doesn't get spoken about enough and and a sort of angle that that we're trying to push really hard here which is you know if you are a driver and you see a cyclist you should like thank them be grateful <laughs> rather than thinking you know this person's in my way be like. God, if, a, if they went on that bike, that would be another car in this like traffic jam. Um, and, you know, this is I'm getting there one car faster. Um, and, you know, I think the biggest advocates that the, the, the people that we really need to get on our side are the people who don't have a choice but to drive. You know, the people who have perhaps a mobility, a mobility disability that means that they have to drive. I know that for, you know, a around half of disabled people driving isn't an option for them but for those who who it is their only option um for those who are you know traders that rely on 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 being able to use um cars on bus drivers on on these people who have to be there 
seeing them really advocate for cycle infrastructure um, that enables, you know, there to be less cars on the road so that their journeys become easier. You know, they, these are the people that I think if we can get them on our side um, and it, it shouldn't take more than, you know, some 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 considered conversation, um, which, you know, in this day and age is, is very difficult to have. But I think that there's a really interesting coalition that can be made there of of road users who say, you know, um, I'm a cyclist and I'm a bus driver and I am someone who needs to use a car to get around. And we all want more cycle lanes so that we can get less traffic on these roads. And I think as we enter this sort of era where we're thinking about social distancing, where climate change is becoming a, a bigger consideration for everyone and where we've really seen the difference that driving makes to air pollution um, like in a, in a way that has sort of never been able to be visualised before for a lot of people through the effects that lockdowns had, um, that hopefully we'll have a sort of new contingent who are, who are advocating for, advocating for these changes. But do you feel like because the, you have national health that people, that the politicians are more attuned to like bringing those costs down and getting them under control? I mean, Definitely. Um, it's something that the politicians are, are really interested in, but it's also something that the healthcare providers are in. So something really interesting has happened in my local area recently where the local hospital here has funded the construction of three new low traffic neighbourhoods, like what's been int introduced in my area, because on the one hand, they want their staff to be able to get to work easily and enjoyably and safely. So they want to have safe cycling and walking routes, but also they want to have less cars on the road because as healthcare providers, as people who work in hospitals, they're seeing the huge damage that car dependency in our cities is creating. They're seeing the impacts on people's lungs through air pollution and the cases of asthma and, and different conditions like that that are coming up. They're seeing the cost of cyclists, pedestrians and drivers who are getting injured in road collisions. Um, and they're, they're just sort of generally seeing the the overarching health issues that arise from a really sedentary lifestyle that it's so easy to fall into if you're sitting down in your car all the time. And they have a real vested interest in, in making that stop. So, you know, we've had coalitions of doctors, of surgeons, of GPs, of hospitals, of, of all different sort of medical professionals here who have really been pushing the government to enact these changes, to build more cycle lanes, to, to encourage people to stop using their cars because they know that their, their jobs are going to be you know, much easier um, when 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 people are much more able to walk and cycle. That's amazing. Um, so I'm in, I'm a new cyclist, as I said. I've only been I've only been cycling for about six months. Um, but I was really shocked at how my experience of living life as a woman in this world had prepared me to live life as a cyclist. Because I think so many so much of the bullshit that women have to confront is very very similar to a lot of the bullshit that cyclists have to. You know. If I am hit by a driver and, and get an injury, um, the first question isn't going to be, you know, how fast was that driver going? Was that driver looking where they were going? Were they paying attention? Were they on their phone? The question is going to be, was I wearing a helmet? You know, had right. I just run through a red light? You know, and as a, as a woman, I'm like, I recognize this victim blaming. Like, <laughs> this is the exact same thing that you would ask me if I was going through a sexual assault. And, you know, I think as women, we're, we're doing much better now than we have historically at calling bullshit on that kind of behaviour on saying, you know what, this isn't about, like, I'm not the one in the wrong here and I'm not the one who's going to be interrogated. And so I think when I 
when I sort of stepped into that sort of cycling space, I was already sort of quite mad and quite quite resistant to the idea of of filling that victim role from the fact that I've just like lived life as a woman for 30 years. Um, the same thing with, you know, being deferential with space, you know, I'm, I'm going to ride in the middle of the lane. I'm going to take up space. I'm going to, I'm going to feel safe and, and seen the same way that I would if I was, you know, in a meeting room and trying to, to, to get an idea across and having someone across the table, either like mansplaining that to me or, or trying to talk over me, you know, I, as a woman, I'm, I'm now used to having to quite aggressively hold my space at the table. And as a cyclist, having to do that on the road, it, you know, it feels like I'm exercising the same muscles. Um, and that wasn't something that I expected or anticipated. And I think, you know, if I was a younger woman starting this out, I would have, I don't think I would have been a good, as good at those things. I think I would have, you know, been, you know, having, wear, always wearing the helmet, always donned out in the high vis, high vis, always, you know, making sure that I was abiding by every rule and going above and beyond and doing everything to make sure that I was um, doing everything that I could do to prevent someone from hurting me um, and, you know, taking up as little space as I possibly could. And and now that I'm older and hopefully a little bit wiser um, and and living in, a, in an age of, you know, incredibly strong women who are, don't apologise for, for sort of taking up space in the world, I think that that's, that's really prepared me to be able to, to, to cycle well and to sort of fit into that um, space in a way that's effective. And I, and I think, you know, I think that there, there is a path there to get more women involved in cycling because it is a real, it is a real form of empowerment, but you are also, you know, exercising muscles that you've been exercising for your entire life. Um, And I think that there can be a big sense of familiarity that comes with that. That is so amazing. My mind is like racing because there's, it's like, it's such a complicated thought, but it's so true. <laughs> Why do they see you bicyclists as the enemy? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. We hate, we hate people hate biker. It's so weird to me. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's anything personal. So like, so recently, recently I had a really bad experience cycling. Well, I shouldn't say really bad experience. I had a pretty normal experience cycling, um, but I was coming back from my, um, sister-in-law's place. She lives, she lives 10 miles away. Um, and we were cycling, I was cycling with my partner through, you know, a, a sort of busy end at the school run, like end of the school day. And I just had so many near misses. I just had, you know, vans that were going too close, that were overtaking, you know, too aggressively, that were speeding, that were slamming their brakes on in front of me. Um, and you know, I was nervous. I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not a super confident cyclist yet. I'm, I'm assertive for sure, but I do get frightened. And I was sort of just my, my, my ethos in life is always just pretend that things are okay. Just like always fake it till you make it kind of thing. Just like if I, if I allow myself to be overwhelmed by this thing, then I'm going to have a terrible time. But if I just pretend everything is fine, it'll be fine. I was uncomfortable, but it wasn't until I sort of got home and my boyfriend who'd been cycling behind me the whole time was just in a really sad down mood. Um, and I sort of asked him what was wrong. And he was just like, 
I've just spent the last hour like watching you nearly die over and over and over again. Like this was awful. I feel terrible. Like you need to be more careful. You need to do all of these things. And like, it was so interesting because before I was, before I cycled, it's the kind of thing I used to say to him all the time. Like this fear I would have about him getting injured on his bike and sort of being like, please wear a helmet, please be safe, please do all these things. And and he'd get annoyed at me again for that sort of victim blaming stuff. And and I wrote this piece at the, I wrote this piece after the experience of a, you know, a, a letter, an open letter to the drivers that, that had put me in danger that day. And, and the idea that I, the sort of conclusion that I came to from writing that piece and from thinking about it is that no one who, no one who is doing that, no one who is behaving in that way, who is being so aggressive towards cyclists and who doesn't want them on the road. I don't think any of those people are having a good, happy, joyous life. Um, and you know, the, the biggest, the biggest sort of offenders that I see on this stuff are um, generally, you know, tradespeople, people in vans, delivery drivers, um, people who are, you know, plumbers, electricians, all of these things, working class people who in an austerity era of London, you know, are really struggling. And for some people, I think that, you know, it might be the only time in their lives that they ever feel like they have more power over someone else. Um, and, and in those days when, you know, you've, you've, you're barely making ends meet, you know, you're fighting with your family at home, you're really struggling, you're having a terrible time and you're stuck behind a cyclist that's made you miss the red light and you're, you're going to be a little bit slower. Like when, when you're, when you're having that terrible a time, when you're that close to the bottom, I think it's really hard to, to look out to other people with like generosity and kindness and, and welcoming, you know, a welcoming spirit. Um, I think it's much easier to sort of blame people outwardly for, for your suffering and, and the things that you're going through. And also to, to sort of replicate the power structures that you've seen performed against you. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the time the people who are, you know, yelling at me from, from vans, cause I'm not going fast enough and, and, you know, close passing me are just like, having a terrible time and and that's the first time that day that they've that they've ever been in control or felt like they had control over a situation or power in a situation and you know what like that might be wrong they might you know they might just be you know people who've who've really got it out for cyclists in the same way that you know some people are misogynistic or some people are racist or, or some people are these horrible things where they really hold these prejudices against a certain group of people but I have a better time thinking that it's not that, that people aren't, you know, just really angry that I exist for that reason, but they're just having a bad time and, and trying to let off some steam and it, it doesn't make it okay, but it makes it possible that, you know, I can still have a relationship with these people and it might be the case that I, you know, run into them at a traffic light further up and say like, hey, that really scared me and have them be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just having a terrible time and I know it's no excuse, but, um, and, you know, I try not to engage with, sort of trolls on Twitter. It's, it's not, it's not where, where joy lies for me. Um, but whenever I do end up in a conversation with someone who is very aggressive or, or opposed to lots of ideas, if I, if I have the strength to approach that conversation with curiosity, which I very rarely do, I will often end up in a situation where that person is apologizing and saying, you know, things are just really hard right now. Um, and I think, you know, we were talking about, we were talking about the sort of winners and losers rhetoric that, that Trump has introduced in, into America and into the world, you know, it's, it's, it, it goes beyond borders. Um, and I think that, I think that one of the things that 
that has created is this real sort of demonization of people on the other side um and this idea that you know you have to you have to externalize all of that pain and suffering and you have to push those out and that you know people just aren't curious about what's going on with someone else um but I'll often you know if I if I do have those conversations more often than not the response is them just sort of being like you know I'm I'm really sorry I hadn't considered this um and I'll I'll try better next time um and you know like you said I, I hope that that's a world that we can get back to one that one that we don't seem so in opposition to each other all of the time and I, I do really think it's possible um but it does you know it does require more generosity um than I'm often capable of giving I'm sure that's not true but I I think you're so right about this it's like we put people in cars and tell them you have all the power in the world and we sell it to them constantly on tv and in movies and fast and the furious and then they're stuck in traffic I found myself so angry in traffic all the time. Yeah. It was just putting me in a bad mood all the time. So I actually gave up my car and just started to lift, tried to use public transportation. Um, can I tell you one really cool thing about LA though, just to, for as you're thinking about all these things, just food for thought, LA actually started, I think is over 400 villages, like little neighborhoods. Wow. But most of our neighborhoods actually have a business district. So like I live in a neighborhood called Larchmont and like we have a, a street and we used to have a butcher and a grocery store and a hardware store and you could like walk and do almost everything and so it la says it is a car culture and it was built around cars but it started as these little neighborhoods so i actually have hope that we can get back to that you know what i mean like shop local and and walk to your butcher so yeah and you know that that sounds like the perfect conditions for something like low traffic neighborhoods you know like only residents can drive you know within it and the way that they're structured disincentivizes residents from driving to the local high street it encourages them to walk or cycle otherwise and then you know you can sort of go on to connecting or, or main roads if you if you need to get further afield um it's like one of my favorite studies i don't know are you familiar with the research of donald appleyard no so um, he did this research, I think it was in the 70s, um, on the fact that if you live on a quiet street, on average, you will have two more friends than someone who lives on a busy one. Um, and he found that there was like a direct correlation between how how many friends and neighbor, neighbors someone had and how much traffic went by their street all the time. So wow. for me, you know, I, I, I want to be able to walk and cycle in a way that is safe and pleasant, but I also want to know my neighbors and I also want to live in a thriving local community. Um, and for me, a big part of that is, you know, reducing the number of cars for me, you know, a busy road is a barrier. Um, and I want as few barriers in, in my neighborhood as possible. And, and since these changes have come into effect, you know, it takes me forever to get anywhere now because I'm constantly running into people that I know and stopping <laughs> and having conversations and, you know, I didn't think that was possible in London. Like that's that's something I thought I was giving up when I moved to the big city on the other side of the world. Um, but like you're saying, you know, I live in a village in London and I'm starting to get to know more and more people in my village and it's beautiful and wonderful. And, you know, we didn't do it when there were more cars. And I think part of that is just like, we were just angrier and more tired and like, didn't like being outside. Um, and as you said, like every time I'm in a car, I'm always amazed at the transformation in my personality. Like if I see a pedestrian walking in front of the car, I'm like, oh, move, 
like you can get this like real frustration and I sit there and I'm just like well who, what am I doing like if I was that pedestrian I would be like hello I have just as much right to be here as you do um but I think it's that like you don't have much agency when you're in a car it can feel a lot of the time like you're just sitting there and trying to get to where you're going but so many external factors influence that um and I think that like nothing enables you things just disable you and, and that's what you can end up focusing on thanks for listening to this episode of the bike talk if you want to hear more go to kpfk.org navigate to programs and choose bike talk on the bike talk page click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the rss link to subscribe our twitter handle is bike talk pfk on facebook we are bike talk you can become friends and join our group 